This is Press Publish, a weekly conversation about journalism, technology, and the media business. I'm Josh Benton, director of the Neiman Journalism Lab at Harvard, and this is episode 12. My guest today is Jesse Holcomb, an associate director of research at the Pew Research Center. Jesse is one of Pew's lead researchers on journalism issues, which means he's been part of a lot of interesting projects. He's looked at issues like how local news is doing in the Internet age, digital security for investigative journalists, how stories get consumed on social media. It's not overstating it to call Pew an essential part of the contemporary journalism landscape. Their audience surveys, their deep analysis, their data crunching, they're all a really big part of what we know about how things are changing. And by reminding us that, hey, not everyone's on Twitter all day, and hey, local television is still the number one way people get their news, they can provide a useful corrective for folks like me who sit in front of a screen all day. Jesse and I talked about my slight panic over the future of local news, how they're thinking about setting the upcoming presidential election cycle, and how Pew's own approach to getting its findings out is changing. Here's our conversation. Tell me what you do at Pew. Well, I've been here at Pew for about eight years, uh, so I've had the chance to be involved with pretty much every aspect of the work we do here at the journalism team, so uh, I, I've kind of lost count of how many state-of-the-news media reports I've been involved in in some way or another, but there's certainly those. Uh, our survey work, our content analysis work, blogging, public speaking, uh, so, uh, you, you know, the, the works. Um, the, uh, you know, I'll, I'll clean the bathrooms every once in a while or whatever, you know. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, I, I think Pew is such an incredibly valuable organization in our world. It's such there. It does so many things that need to be done in terms of original research. How, how does how do you guys view your mission and vis-a-vis journalism research? Well, thanks, Josh. I really appreciate that. The way we think about it. Uh, you could, uh, you know, we, we toggle back and forth in some ways between studying these industrial indicators, uh, the health uh, and state of American journalism, but we also spend a lot of time thinking about audience behaviors and attitudes. So, uh, you know, while, while we might study the economics of CNN, we're not necessarily interested in that for, for its own sake or as an end to itself. Really what we're interested in is what does this mean for public life, for audiences, for informed communities, and so on. So uh, we take a very uh, bird's-eye view. We, we take a long view. Uh, one of the benefits of being an institution, I guess you could say, is that we're able to trend. Uh, we, we can expect that we're going to be able to answer, well, at least ask, similar questions next year and the year after, and be able to paint a picture that, that looks over time and takes a breath and examines uh, uh, some of those big, profound questions about uh, information, news, and civic life from as many angles as we possibly can. And just from a historical perspective, I mean, the Pew Charitable Trust and the, and the Pew Research Center are so involved in so many things. Like, how big a part of the overall research center is the journalism portion? Because I know, in, you know, we uh, we hear a lot uh, Neiman Lab from from you guys, from the study of Internet and society people, from a variety of other wings of the center. What's uh, how, how big a chunk are you? Gosh, well, we're growing uh, as a center, so I don't have the latest tally, but. Uh, you know, we've got uh, we've got a good handful of, of folks on the research team studying journalism. Oh, I guess uh, now you're going to make me do the math, but it's uh, you know ten or twelve of us uh, 
at any given point. Uh, we get summer interns. We get a Google fellow, which I know that you do too, I believe, Josh. Sure, uh, that's right. That's right. We've got some great advanced analytics interns that come. Uh, we've got people who spend a few months doing some text analysis for us. So our team is it's sort of, it changes uh, at any given moment, which is really cool. But the center as a whole, uh, you know, of course, we've got our global attitudes work. We study religion, politics, social trends, uh, and, of course, Internet and society and journalism, and, and more than that. So we are, we're big and, and getting bigger, and that allows us to, to answer and tackle some really, uh, really tough questions. And the neat thing about working with all of these different cross-cutting teams is the, is the potential to collaborate. So uh, you bring different kinds of expertise together, uh, you bring these minds together, you can tackle some interesting questions. So uh, I've done a fair amount of work with the religion team examining the role of, uh, of religion coverage in, in American life, how the news media cover religion, uh, and, and to be able to tap into those kinds of expertise is, is really fun, and, and it's a real privilege. I, I, one of the things that I think you, which is really important and valuable, is is focus. You know, we here at Neiman Lab and in other places uh, in our sort of space can get uh, distracted by the the latest uh, the latest Slack integration, <laughs> the latest uh, digital advance or or innovation attempt, and, and with, with the impression that those things are having a bigger impact than they might be right now. You, you guys have always been very good about recognizing that most people are not uh, getting all their news from Twitter. Most people are not getting their news uh, in a very hyper-connected way. Um, you recently came out with a with a, a study noting or a piece noting that uh, 15% of Americans don't have access to the Internet. Um, can you talk a little bit about, about the ways in which you think um, – you know, if you're if you're a Neiman Lab reader and you spend a lot of time focused on the latest, you know, Snapchat strategy from Vox, <laughs> and, and the sort of world that we live in, what are, what are the things that we're missing about how news is actually reaching, you know, the uh, the broader audience in the U.S.? Well, we do think of it as kind of a useful corrective. That fifteen percent number, I need to remind myself of that when I see when I see data like that. Sure. Uh, you know, it, it, it's kind of a gut check. Uh, and of course, that number is different depending on your socioeconomic status and so on. So, you know, it's even higher for those who have not completed a high school education. So part of our role is to offer that corrective or that reminder to uh, certain parts of our core audience that might not always be thinking about local television or the print newspaper. Some of these platforms are still really important uh, when it comes to local news in particular. Local TV still has a very dominant presence uh, in local communities. Uh, uh, you know, the, the way I kind of think about it sometimes is that, um, you know, the, the future of news in one place is, is perhaps the, uh, the past tense in another place. So uh, Sioux City is not going to look like New York City uh, uh, when it comes to some of these uh, adoptions of technological innovations. Uh, you know, we did some case studies recently that allowed us to probe some of the differences in the types of communities and their information environments. You see dramatically higher usage of broadband internet in a place like Denver, Colorado, than you do in Macon, Georgia. Uh, so some of these changes are uneven. And I think the work that just came out this week from from Rutgers, Phil Napoli and his team, 
underscores some of that, and it provides a lot of grist for some really interesting questions about the uneven distribution or access to uh, local news and information. And I think that uh, the digital revolution with all of its potential and offerings has not necessarily uh, provided all the kinds of answers uh, to these questions uh, uh, across the country. Yeah, yeah. I, I want to drill down on that on the local piece because I think you're you're completely right. And it's the one, you know, when people ask me, you know, what what do you worry about? You know, I, I don't worry about Washington coverage. There are always going to be people who are interested in covering the president and Congress and and, and D.C. I don't worry about sports coverage, technology coverage, all these areas where there are real solid economic incentives to um, to do that work online. But I, I am really worried about local coverage. Uh, it seems like there is nothing to coming along to replace in any systemic way um, the continued decline of newspapers. And local television, you know, I've always sort of joked, you know, lo- I, as a former newspaper guy, I always felt a little bit bad that my industry got disrupted before everybody else's. But, you know, the, what's happening in television just in the last year or so would, would seem to – uh, provide at least a sense of foreboding for what might happen to local television over the next five, ten years. You know, what do you have any reason for optimism in, in local news at this point? Is there anything that you've seen in, in your studies or, or in the data that, that makes you feel good about it? Or is it just the gloomy scene that I see? Well, I think that the next five to ten years are going to be really interesting. Uh, that's, that's one kind of neutral way of putting it. <laughs> Uh, for for local news and information. I think there are a lot of unanswered questions uh, when it comes to local news. Uh, you see the emergence of these community startups. Uh, you know, Michelle McClellan has been tracking those pretty carefully. We put some numbers to the emergence of full-time editorial jobs in local uh, and and regional digital news startups. But, of course, they're not making up for the losses that you see uh, that are tracked by ASNE. You saw the 10% decline in newspaper editorial jobs in 2014. Uh, so we might see some acceleration uh, of these kinds of declines on the newspaper level. Local television uh, is in some kind of a relative position of strength vis-a-vis local print, but it's very very well could be that the uh, local TV's disruption may be yet ahead. You know, we see some pretty major differences, generationally speaking, when it comes to who's watching and consuming local television news. Uh, no, no real surprise in the data there, but millennials and younger folks, they're turning to social media and mobile devices. So uh, that's, to the extent that that's where the future of local news is uh, on mobile devices and on the social web, uh, there are major unanswered questions economically when it comes to uh, investigative journalism, civic news production, and so on. Yeah, I, the uh, I think it was in, was last year's state of the news media report that that had the, the note about local television, uh, or maybe it was a couple years ago. Lo- uh, young people not watching local television. Do, do you have an idea whether that is how to what degree young people not watching local television news is young people just not watching network television? You know the 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 shift to to other platforms, the shift to watching Netflix on your laptop or or you know Chromecasting something versus how much of it is is you know a, a decrease in local engagement? You know how much of it is the part of a broader media shift versus something that might be specific to local news? That's actually a really good question. Uh, you know, and 
some of our data, you know, when we look at local TV and news consumption, we were able to probe into this a little bit with our case studies. So uh, you see audiences turn, we, we asked about engagement with local television content on different platforms, on the web, on mobile devices, and on, uh, on the traditional platform. Uh, the vast majority of that engagement with local TV content uh, and local radio content, for that matter, is happening <clears throat> excuse me, on those traditional platforms. Uh, it, you know, I do think that there are some, some interesting sort of structural changes that are happening that we have yet to really understand uh, when it comes to what this generation <laughs> is really going to connect with. Uh, you know, the, the data historically have suggested that younger audiences aren't necessarily spending as much time with the news uh, as older generations are, that uh, perhaps they, quote-unquote, enjoy the news less. Uh, these are some of the data that we've trended over the years. But uh, I think a, a, a really interesting question is uh, the extent to which the news norms and routines uh, of yesteryear continue to exist and what role those kinds of norms uh, play in either attracting or repelling younger audiences. So uh, it's not necessarily that millennials don't care about uh, civic life or their local community. Uh, I do think that uh, it might have something to do with the platforms, the, the norms, the delivery, the distribution that hasn't necessarily caught up to what these younger news consumers are, are doing and where they're spending their time. Yeah. I mean, I think it's easy to, for, for people to forget the degree to which the focus in, on local news in this country in the 20th century was really just a matter of distribution uh, driving a content model, right? I mean, a, no, a local newspaper was local because that was how far you could deliver the paper every morning. A local television station was local because that's as far as the broadcast tower uh, went. And because that was the addressable audience, you focused on content that was related to that audience. And my big concern for local is that online, of course, those distribution limitations disappear. And if you're thinking about starting a business uh, online that's going to be engaged with news, the incentive to focus on a really local level seems to be much smaller than, than what it was before. Yeah. I, you know, I think that's, that's probably right. Um, when, you know, you look at the development of, you know, that, that's, you start to see some of these nonprofit startups coming into play. Uh, and I, I think that perhaps there is a big challenge on the community level when it comes to, you know, building up this digital nonprofit model for sustainability uh, you know, there's a reason you hear about Texas Tribune all the time. Um, so, so I, I think that there are some real, there are. It really comes down to major financial and economic questions about the future uh, of local news, and I think uh, some of these questions uh, are, are going to come into focus even more clearly uh, in the next few years. Yeah, and I mean, local television has always been. You know, let me, let me admit my newspaper bias here. It's always been as much an amplification of what gets reported in newspapers as a source of original reporting, but it's a very important amplification. And when people talk about all these new skinny bundles of uh, Internet-delivered television, you know, stripping away all the, the channels of the giant cable bundle, um, in most cases, local local content is, is just not a part of that. It's, it's still – it's the cable networks that are driven by, uh, you know – 
lifestyle and, and demographic slicing and that sort of thing. And if there is a, a network feed, it's often a sort of generic CBS feed as opposed to, you know, your local CBS affiliate. I, I, I just, uh, I think if anything, we might be over underestimating the degree to which uh, the local news ecosystem is going to degrade over the next next five ten years. Yeah, and, and the the bigger question there, well, just as big is how much people are going to notice, how much people are going to care. Uh, you, you know that that's you know that that's the other part of this is is how engaged people are on the local level. Traditionally, the data have suggested that news audiences, uh, at least here in the U.S., tend to be a little bit more parochial, so they really pay attention very closely to what's happening in their neighborhood and in their local community, perhaps more so than they do on the national level uh, and, and even more so still than on the international level. Our recent data has backed that up. Uh, uh, however, you, you know, there might be a disconnect between that interest and engagement and uh, the kind of perhaps financial support that is needed to prop up a, a business model that hasn't transitioned to the digital age. Yeah. Particularly if the, the national and international content, because it can have a, a larger potential audience has more money behind it and they can produce a, a higher quality product, or at least the perception of higher quality. I mean, I look at way too many local newspaper websites and, and just sort of shrink back in horror at how terrible they all are. And even if they are, creating content that is of at least theoretically greater local interest to a local audience. Um, the delivery mechanism is, is so poor that I, I can imagine a lot of people saying, you know what, I'll, I'll go to nytimes.com instead, or I'll go to CNN or I'll go to Vox or, or vice or wherever. Yeah. Matt Hyman's, uh, report, which you probably read, uh, being, uh, being of a Shorenstein connection was really interesting on that score. You know, the, the, the load times, alone when it comes to these local news websites may have a huge impact on the uh, on on that stickiness question the the ability to build up an audience uh, so it, it's it, it's these sites are challenged yeah yeah I, there's one thing i've always found interesting about you know i'm i'm not an academic uh, despite the harvard.edu at the end of my email address um, and one thing i i've found interesting the more i've learned about academic research into journalism is, you know, that how difficult it can be to really judge how much people know about, about, uh, the news, you know, the news changes from day to day. So it's hard to be able to do cross comparisons, like to answer simple questions, like do young people today know less about the news than people did 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Um, you know, you guys have done some, some work around that area. Like what's, what's the state of affairs on that? Do I, if, you know, there's a certain old fogey desire to complain that the young people don't know anything these days, but, or they don't care about society or whatever else. Is there evidence on, on that point about whether or not young people have, are, are paying more or less attention to the news than their predecessors? Yeah, we've asked questions about uh, political knowledge over the years, and it can be hard to, in some ways, hard to trend these data because, you know, you're asking about different kinds of current events and different kinds of figures, so your subject matter changes uh, over time. Uh, you know, I will speak very broadly um, uh, about political knowledge uh, and information, and uh, one of the takeaways there is that it had, doesn't necessarily change really, really dramatically year over year, one to the next. Um, there's, there's a sort of interesting level of stability uh, over time. 
we have seen in certain cases younger generations e exhibiting more knowledge about certain issues than uh, than they do about others. Uh, you know, broadly speaking, though. Uh, we do see some higher levels of political knowledge among older generations than younger. Uh, but it's, it's an interesting question. It, it seems really important and, uh, you know, perhaps uh, so important that it's surprising that we, we don't always know more about it than, uh, than, we, actually, uh, than we actually do. But uh, um, that, that's sort of the state of play on that. Yeah. It, it's also interesting. I mean, we can shift to talking a bit about politics as we're talking. It was, uh, we're talking the, the day after the first Fox News uh, Republican presidential debate. Um, one of the things that has been interesting about the last few political cycles is the really increased gap between voter behavior in the presidential cycle years and in the, the off years, the, the, the you know, 2008 versus 2010 and 2012 versus 2014, and how big of a gap there is in in the kinds of people who turn out, I, I wonder if that is, if what degree that can be turned into an issue about local knowledge, right? In the in the presidential years, you're voting for Barack Obama or Mitt Romney. You're voting voting about for people who have. You're not able to avoid information about them. The national media is is still like, there are very few people who aren't aware about what's going on there, and the, the voter turnout in the last few cycles there have been higher than than in in uh, the predecessors. Whereas in the congressional races, which are very locally based, it seems like uh, the, the the gap between those two those two different electorates is bigger than ever. I wonder if that ties into the the local versus national stuff we're talking about. Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, you know, right now we're really very much focused on uh, on some of these national issues. Uh, you know, that's been. Uh, what we've been generating over the past year or two, uh, a lot of data uh, looking at a very sort of national level when it comes to sources of news and information about politics and government. So, you know, that's where we start to get into uh, you know, more of this data on what we're learning about how polarized audiences are engaging with some of these large national news networks. Um, uh, and that's where you start to look at some of these ideological divides, which, uh, you know, the interesting question there is the extent to which uh, uh, polarization and, uh, and cynicism lead to disengagement with, uh, with public life. And, uh, and, and those are tough things to untangle. But, um, you know, political information... And, and news is, is really sort of at the top of our agenda right now. And uh, a big question, whether it's on the local level uh, or national level, is to what extent some of these traditional gatekeepers are starting to lose their ability uh, to, to perform that role. Uh, th those are some of the questions that we're able to ask again and again uh, over time and to set in context for, uh, uh, for the many years that we've been studying them. So... Uh, uh, whether local congressional officials are able to directly engage with their uh, constituents through social media, through, uh, through mobile technology, uh, through their own websites, uh, I think is kind of an interesting question uh, to tease out in terms of whether that's having any kind of an effect uh, on engagement or knowledge or interest in local versus regional and national politics. Yeah. I mean, I've been really interested in, in the intersection between you know the polarization debate, the the sort of 
what can be brought in broad terms as the Fox News versus MSNBC debate, the idea where they were just, you know, ideologues on either side are getting news purely within their own universe and, you know, they're, they're blinded to, to the, the, the truth, the, the middle, the, the, the uh, independent journalism, whatever, however you want to frame it, that argument. And then at the same time, the idea that people don't have enough knowledge about politics and candidates and positions and policy – I've always been interested in Alan Abramowitz's uh, research that shows that high information voters are often the most ideological voters. That that it's if you ha- if you know a lot about politics, if you if you score high on those questions about like, do you know the name of the Speaker of the House? Do you know the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court? If you're high on knowledge there, you're often going to be on those extremes. There seems to be, I think, deep in the ideological idea of journalism, the idea that. You know, we are guardians of democracy, and if we can just get the information to the people, they will they will make wise choices and not be blinded by by their political biases. But that doesn't seem to match up with with reality. I, I think I see the ghost of Walter Littman tapping on your shoulder again, <laughs> Josh. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's those ideologically consistent uh, minorities, really. Um, uh, minority of the general public. So it's a smaller group that are either uh, uh, consistently conservative, as we call it, or consistently liberal. Uh, they're also very a- activated and engaged uh, uh, members of the public, too. So uh, there, there is something going on here. Um, now, it also happens to be that these consistent conservatives and consistent liberals, as we call them, tend to inhabit very different kinds of information environments. So uh, for the for the conservatives, almost half say that Fox uh, News is their main source of news. They tend to dr- distrust uh, many more sources of news than liberals do. Uh, there's not really a perfect analog on uh, among consistent liberals. So uh, they don't turn to a single source the way that conservatives cluster around Fox. Uh, but they do turn to certain sources like CNN, NPR, New York Times at, at higher rates. Uh, the trust gap is really interesting, too, uh, with consistent conservatives just tending to distrust more sources of news uh, than these consistent liberals do. So, you know, we talk about this polarized electorate um, when it comes to media polarization. It's uh, these groups together, conservatives and liberals, only account for about 20 percent of the public. Uh, but they're but they're very engaged. They participate in. Uh, um, in political conversations at high rates. So they're, uh, they're not a majority of the public, but uh, they're worth really taking seriously and learning more about because of the role that they play. You know, I was just thinking about this yesterday because uh, since we're speaking on, on the Friday after the presidential debate, we're also speaking the day after Jon Stewart's big goodbye from the, the, on The Daily Show. And, and one thing that really struck me is in part of the, you know, the, the grand uh, exit that he was granted by the by the rest of the media about what you know this Christ-like figure that he, that he allegedly was uh, or is uh, was the degree to which one of his biggest impacts was making cable news seem like a much bigger deal than it actually is, you know, uh, a a Fox and Friends uh, bit that may have been viewed by a million people suddenly gets amplified into and that into a, a big deal because John Stewart, uh, you know, 
amplifies it and shows it to, to his audience to make fun of it. It, it, it does seem like the the impact of of Stewart and other folks like him is, has been to make cable news because it provides video and because it provides you know grist for the satirical mill uh, and into a bigger a bigger factor than than it actually is. When in in reality, you know, even though Fox News has much higher ratings than say MSNBC, they're both watched by a relatively small and definitely older skewing uh, slice of the American audience. Yeah, Josh, again, that's one of these uh, correctives, again, that I, that I sometimes like to think that we issue when, when it comes to looking at those data. Uh, <clears throat> cable news plays this sort of larger-than-life role in the imaginations of many observers of the media, I think. Uh, you're right. Only a few million people, according to Nielsen data, are watching uh, Fox News or CNN or MSNBC at any given time. Uh, the viewers of network television news are orders of magnitude larger in scale uh, on any given night than those who are watching cable news. So uh, it's in part, it's the power of personality. It's the, uh, it's the ability of, of shock or controversy to become, oh, I don't even want to call it viral, but it, uh, <laughs> but it does get amplified and it gets magnet, uh, uh, and its magnitude is uh, is helped in some ways by uh, other players in the ecosystem like the John Stewarts, uh, the Stephen Colberts, and so on. So uh, in reality, it's really a small number of people who are really devoted uh, Fox News fans, MSNBC fans. They tend to be older. Uh, um, and the numbers in total are starting to decline as well. If you look at the Nielsen data overall, uh, there's this sense in which cable news has already peaked as a medium. Uh, uh, nevertheless, uh, you still see this kind of outsized uh, effect when it comes to how it reverberates in the media environment. Yeah. I know that you, you can't talk about specific studies or specific uh, you know reports that you guys are going to be coming out with, but since we are heading into, an, a, or, or already, I guess already in, another presidential cycle, what are the questions that you're going to be most interested in? It could just be you in specific. It doesn't have to be Pew in this case, but what are the questions about this cycle that you're, you're most interested in compared to the last few? Well, I, I kind of alluded to it a little bit earlier, but I, I really do think it's the, it's the role of non-journalistic stakeholders in mediating this political information environment. So uh, whether it's politicians, their surrogates, uh, activists, advocacy groups, uh, super PACs, and, uh, and, and all the rest, uh, whether it's uh, nonprofits or uh, or the public at large, how how are they? How is their influence being mediated and distributed? And uh, uh, how is that changing the kinds of political information that voters are are seeing? Uh, I'm also curious about uh, what you might call a newer generation. It's not so so new anymore, but. Uh, you know, what you might call digital native news providers. So, um, you know, the, the Gawkers, the Huffington Post, Business Insider, uh, Vox, and so on, uh, they're starting to mature and, and grow up a little bit. Uh, we know a lot about their digital strategies, the way they've disrupted the environment a little bit. Uh, we know a bit about uh, what kind of 
venture capital they're bringing to the uh, bringing in and uh, about their audience numbers. But uh, I think there's a lot we could stand to learn about uh, how they are changing the way that election news gets covered uh, or how politics gets talked about. Uh, so, so I myself, uh, on a personal level, are very, I'm very curious about that. Um, uh, you know, and of course, we'll be continuing to uh, look at some of the bigger questions about how the public learns about politics and, uh, and election news and to be able to set that in the context of all we've learned over uh, the past uh, any number of years. Yeah. Uh, the last thing I want to ask you about is you, you guys study publishers and study the distribution of, of information, but you are also a publisher and you, you distribute information. Um, you know, you rely on folks like us and, and others to, to amplify your message, but you know, you, you run a website, um, as well as you're thinking about new ways of doing research and generating, uh, the, the kind of, uh, information that you're interested in, in finding and, and sharing. Uh, I'm just curious, given, uh, you know, this is an issue that, that we have. We're a site about news sites. So, so we, uh, we are watching what other people are doing to see how we can do our job better or differently. Uh, and you have the extra edge of thinking about new ways of doing research and, and so forth. But I'm just curious how, how in the years that you've been at, at Pew, how have you seen the, that forward-facing element of, of your work, that, that both the direct to the public and, and sort of through intermediaries like, like me, how, how have you seen that shift over time? How do you, what direction do you see it going? Well, first, before I answer that question, I do want to say that uh, I love seeing our work uh, in Neiman Lab, and I, uh, I really enjoy seeing the way that your reporters treat our data and, and, and take the care to sort of parse through it. So, um, uh uh, you know that's that's always it's always good to talk to you and the other reporters at Neiman Lab about the stuff we're doing. Um, uh, probably like many other websites or organizations, foundations, nonprofits, or or whatever, our 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 idea about getting our message out has has changed over time uh, to the extent that we are increasingly seeing ourselves as. Uh, as very forward-facing, as being directly engaged with our audience. Uh, uh, at the same time, we we haven't stopped relying on other sources of uh, uh, other channels, other other sources of distribution to help uh, spread our information out to uh, whoever uh, whoever needs it and whoever wants it. So uh, we've we've staffed up on our web teams, our digital teams. Uh, we've been thinking, uh, trying to think very creatively about how to tell stories with data. Uh, uh, you know, the way I think about it is, um, uh, you know, share, always be sharing data, use words if necessary, which is sort of a very crude reinterpretation of uh, Francis of Assisi, <laughs> um, <laughs> I think. Uh, so, we're, so we're doing a lot with, uh, you know, some of these, uh, visual essays and uh, interactive components uh, a lot with uh, with graphs and charts and and newer ways of, of storytelling in, in that way we're trying to promote our experts to to be more forward-facing and directly engaged with their audience uh, on social media uh, and such so we haven't abandoned the other traditional means of getting our message out so talking to News outlets uh, making public presentations. Uh, we like to do that a lot. 
but we're also trying to build up our own audience as well. So, you know, it's all in the service of getting our information out there. Uh, we want to share it. We want people to use it. Uh, and, and we want to have the, the biggest impact that we possibly can. So we'll do that however we can. It, I, it does seem to me that you guys are particularly good. And I, th- I think this is at a, at a Pew Research Center level, maybe not at the, just the journalism level, but um, what you do on Fact Tank of taking older studies in some cases and pulling out individual data points. I and mean, one, one challenge we always have when we write about Pew reports, particularly the state of the news media report, but others as well, is that there's so much in there. There, that there are so many angles that you could pursue that inevitably there are interesting data points that, you know, we don't get to. And it seems like you guys have been pretty good about aggregating your – I've gotten re- actually quite good about aggregating yourself and highlighting things to either tie to the news cycle, you know, five things you need to know about Jon Stewart uh, yes, uh, the other day, or uh, just – giving interesting data points another life. It seems like a, a lesson that a lot of news organizations, I think, could learn from, could learn from you. Well, I'm glad you noticed it. And uh, yes, we've got smart people here who are really thinking hard about ways we can get the most mileage out of our research. There's a lot of stuff buried in these reports. There's other data that perhaps uh, was gathered at one point, but didn't make it into a report. There's just a lot of material that uh, we want to make sure gets into uh, the right hands. So uh, part of it is being able to distill, as you as you suggest, the, the key findings of some of these big reports that not everyone has time to read. Uh, part of it is being able to respond to what's happening in the news. So uh, we've, we've increased our pace uh, and our metabolism over the years. And uh, um, it's nice to see that that's being uh, rewarded with some uh, uh, with some people noticing and uh, and really getting a lot of use out of the fact tank blog uh, and some of the other smaller pieces that we're doing. So uh, there's just there's just mountains of data that we are very fortunate to have uh, at our disposal, and uh, we're trying to, I guess you could say, you know, <laughs> use the whole animal. Yeah. Um, and, and really get the most out of it. And so sometimes that means chopping it up. Uh, sometimes that means taking one little nugget and, uh, and sort of telling a new story with it. Uh, so, so we're trying to be really creative about how we do that. Great. Last thing I want to ask you, the, uh, uh, for people who are maybe listening to this but uh, aren't as obsessive readers of, of your work as, as we at Neiman Lab often are, um, what are what are two or three recent studies that you guys have put out quickly that uh, you think would be really valuable reading? If you're if you're a Neiman Lab reader, if you're involved in digital journalism in some sort of way, what are the the the, the reports or fact tank blog, uh, blog posts or, or whatever that a couple that you might direct people to that you think would be of high value to them? Well, first, we uh, pretty recently, in the past couple of weeks, re- released an update of our social media and news consumption data on Twitter and Facebook. So uh, uh, we were able to trend some of these questions about how people are getting news on these platforms uh, over the past couple of years. And th- th- those data show some, uh, some, some spikes in the numbers of, uh, of U.S. adults who are getting news on Facebook and Twitter and uh, start to give some hints at how those platforms are different kinds of uh, news settings for U.S. adults. So th- that, was a, that was a good one. Uh, I like that one. Uh, I, I spent a lot of time with uh, our, uh, our report, Local News in a Digital Age, which uh, throws a whole bunch of uh, research methods at uh, one big question. Uh, 
what's the state of the local news ecosystem? That uh, that one came out in, uh, I think it was March. Uh, so uh, I, I would say those, those two are some big ones. Uh, our millennials report, uh, looking at how millennials compared to older generations engage with news about politics and government. Uh, those are a few uh, that... Uh, 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 that I, you know, think your audience uh, or those beyond your audience would be pretty interested uh, in taking a look at uh, that we've produced over the past few months. Okay. Well, great. Well, Jesse, as always, great talking with you. You too, Josh. Thanks a lot. Uh, I had a lot of, well, I had a lot of fun. Well, that's episode 12 of Press Publish. I hope you enjoyed it. My thanks to Jesse for the conversation. You can find him on Twitter at Jesse Holcomb. And you can find the Pew Research Center's work around journalism at the very conveniently domained journalism.org. If you like our show, I hope you'll subscribe. You can find the link to our feed at presspublish.org or just subscribe in iTunes. If you like the show, a positive review in iTunes also helps us out a lot. The Neiman Journalism Lab is a project of the Neiman Foundation for Journalism at Harvard University, home of the Neiman Fellowships, Neiman Reports Magazine, Neiman Storyboard, and much, much more. Find us at neiman.harvard.edu, and that's N-I-E-M-A-N, not like Neiman Marcus. This episode was recorded at Walter Lippmann House. Walter Lippmann, who said, We are all captives of the pictures in our head. Our belief that the world we have experienced is the world that really exists. Our theme music is Missing You by Trash 80. Check back next week for another episode of Press Publish, but until then, always remember, disrupt yourself before someone else disrupts you. Mm-hmm.